Welcome to the People in the Red Vest, a podcast of the International Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies, the IFRC. In each episode, we feature inspiring, surprising, and thought-provoking conversations with people who dedicate their lives to helping others. In this episode, how to help millions of refugees cope with the mental and emotional stresses of conflict, mass migration, and starting over in new homes and new countries. We speak to a mental health specialist from Ukraine about her efforts to organize mental health and psychosocial services for her fellow refugees. And we ask her about her own journey fleeing war and about what keeps her going through tumultuous times. I feel that my skills and my life important because I can help someone. And if it is just the only one person, I can say that my life goes good. It's part of my coping strategy to help others. So I can think that I can be very helpful and important for someone. And I really have something that I can bring to their life. It's very helpful for me as well. My guest today is Natalia Kornienko, IFRC specialist on mental health and psychosocial response in countries impacted by the conflict in Ukraine. Welcome, Natalia. Thank you, Alexandra. So given the impact that the conflict has had on so many people's lives, this sounds like a big undertaking. Can you tell us what does your role involve? As a mental health and psychosocial specialist, my role is basically in addressing the psychological and emotional well-being people and for communities who was affected. So you are working right now, you are based in, in Warsaw in Poland uh, for IFRC and you are working with our national society in Poland. What does that look like? What exactly um, does your day look like when you work with them? Uh, day by day, it's not the same. It's very dependent of the stage of the implementation uh, of project of our activity that we have. So, uh, for example, we can have a field visit and we are going in the shelter uh, to talk with people, uh, to understand their needs and to prepare the better response and support. Or it can be a coffee and brainstorming how we can address better different activities in other location. Also a lot of paperwork for sure. <laughs> yes, I, I can imagine. What kinds of services and approaches uh, are being used, not just uh, by the Polish National Society, but other national societies that are offering this kind of mental health and psychosocial services for Ukrainian refugees? I would say it very depends on the previous experience that national society have in addressing uh, mental health needs. But in general, uh, we are using a very wide approach uh, that includes trauma-informed approach and uh, that we call a psychological first aid. And there is a project uh, from the EU for Health 
that supporting uh, national society in their response and in their services uh, to uh, support people fleed from Ukraine. So this conflict creates a massive need in support, especially in mental health and psychosocial support. And the last year, uh, there was created a big project supported by the eu for health program. The main goal of this project is to support people that fleeing from Ukraine. The first uh, part of this project involved five neighbor countries, Poland, Slovakia, Romania, Hungary, and also uh, after Ukraine was included in addition. But after one year, we have uh, more than 20 countries involved in this project as prioritized. Is this because we knew that uh, the Ukrainian refugees went to all of these countries, so the 20 countries that you're mentioning? That's why the expansion of the project. Yes, and the movement is still going. People still changing their location according to their circumstances and according to the support they can receive in these countries. I suppose the level of services differs from one country to another depending on the national society. Right. So what can you give us an example of the level of services that the National Society in Poland provides? Sure. First, we integrated the MHPSS component in existing services uh, such as cash and voucher assistance and shelter. Why it is important? Uh, when we are talking about mental health, is, uh, it is also not about the direct service that we're providing. It's also about how we're doing all other services. For example, there was a situation on the registration point for the cash and voucher assistance program. And people that was trained uh, to provide psychological first aid was able to recognize people with a marker of uh, high stress and they know how to support these people and how to link them with other services. So this is the base level of uh, support uh, that was integrated as an approach in response. I would also want to mention that the Polish Red Cross established InfoLine to support the Ukrainian uh, population. And this info line uh, had very interesting structure. Uh, it was started as a cash and voucher assistant info line, uh, but we realized that we really need this MHPSS component. And uh, we train people who work in, on this info line how to provide uh, psychological first aid under this project, uh, EU for Health project. And also we added two professional psychologists and they were also from Ukraine. This is about uh, how people affected by the conflict try to help other people. And the personal story can be also about these people that to be, uh, when they're affected by themselves, but they also try to uh, put their efforts to support others. Because you know that the biggest challenge that we have is the language gap. So it's hard to find a lot of people that uh, speak Ukrainian. And uh, so we engage the people who wanted to be part of our movement and support others.
the conflict in Ukraine has forced people to move to a wide range of places throughout Europe, and it's impacted millions of people. The same is, of course, true with almost all conflicts, uh, not just Ukraine. I'm curious, how do we meet this massive mental health and psychosocial support need? Humanitarian organizations like ours uh, don't generally have hundreds and thousands of psychologists available to go and, and, and help. So what's the best strategy? How do we make a significant difference with the resources available? Thank you for this question. And I think it's a very important question to understand in what we are putting in this very long preparation, mental health and psychosocial support. Of course, when uh, the meeting the massive needs in psychological well-being, uh, it's a complex challenge. Uh, especially, as you say, we don't have hundreds of psychologists that can work uh, day by day. So, uh, as a humanitarian organization, uh, we have a strategies and uh, we are using the approach when uh, the most important is base level of support that can be given uh, not by professionals like psychologists or specialized clinical specialists. So the best level of support usually provided by people who trained in psychological first aid. This is non-professional support, but it's very important that if we are doing this support on base level, we can have thousands, even thousand trained volunteers. We, we do not have hundreds of psychologists, but we can have thousands of trained volunteers that can provide this kind of support. And according to uh, our data, if we are doing this support on base level, this means that people who receive the base level will not be will not have this need in more specialized support. So this is our approach as organization to cover the most base levels of support and it will decrease the number of people, significantly decrease number of people who will need uh, more professional and more specialized support. So very often, uh, people who flee from war or violence end up living within new communities, like you and your daughter, right? And they don't necessarily gather in specific places, uh, so they're spread out in cities or rural areas. So how can we be sure that we're reaching them? We have uh, strategies and tools for this. Humanitarian organizations and Red Cross as well, uh, using standard tools to understand how we can engage and a community and understand the information flow. During our assessment that goes on the constant base, we try to ask people what channels do they use to receive information and to contact with each other. Uh, after this data can be used uh, to design the programs so we can be sure that people can hear about us and can hear about our services. Also, uh, very important to have a feedback mechanism from individuals and from community leaders because we need to know what we can do better if needed. So. Mental well-being is not something people usually want to share openly with a stranger, especially not in 
you know, for many people from your culture, as we discussed earlier, um, once you've reached out and made contact, how do you build trust so that people feel comfortable opening up to you? This is very important to have the understanding that language matters. If I will ask, for example, you or one of my colleagues, how is your mental health? They will never answer me. <laughs> but if I will ask, how are you? How do you feel? Do you need something like very basic water or maybe some information or just to talk? It's usually uh, give the opportunity to person the understanding that her feelings is normal and important and uh, the person can talk. If we are using very professional language, usually we are facing a very high level of stigma. But if we are talking about mental health in a very simple way, just how are you? How is your family? Are you good on, on your own new place? It's something that you need now and we can share with you. It's also about mental health, but it brings humanity in our language and it brings this uh, possibility to build a bridge and trust between us. also your story it's your personal story as well because you are Ukrainian and you worked for the Ukrainian Red Cross why don't you tell us your story yeah I'm definitely the Red Cross person <laughs> uh, I started my journey with the Ukrainian Red Cross as a mental health and psychosocial support technical advisor and it was amazing times when we uh, worked with our team in Ukraine and created uh, services and built capacity for Ukrainian Red Cross. Uh, after I changed my role and became mental health and psychosocial support field officer, so I started to provide support uh, for families that was affected from 2014. Uh, that the conflict started. And this was in Kiev? Yes, it was in Kiev. So this program was uh, designed to help the family of missing. And in this role, I face the beginning of the white invasion. And this is when, when you yourself had to address your own personal situation. Yes, this is a double role. My life was divided. The first part tried to support myself and my family and my daughter. And the other part, I was involved in response in Ukraine uh, in the first days. And we tried to do our best. So during our own evacuation, I visit shelters, uh, I visit registration points and train people and support people. And after I came back home and tried to support myself and my daughter and my family. <laughs> so it was like 24 hours work almost. Um, the first day was really hard. So I was very clear that I need to be in double role as helper and as a person that also uh, need to be supported 
So we had this peer-to-peer -peer support group inside family, but also with our colleagues from the Red Cross. And we tried to do our best in both of these roles. At some point, you realized that you needed to change something in order to, to support yourself and your daughter. Your daughter is now how old? Now she's nine. She was seven. Uh, at the time. Yes, at the time. And yes, this was the question that I asked myself. Uh, on which role am I now? What should I do as a mother? And what should I do as a professional? So at one time I understood that I need to do some kind of changing and make decision as a mother. And as a mother, I made the decision to evacuate my daughter in Poland. This was the first country we arrived. It was March 2022. And when I create a safe space to my daughter, I switched to my another role. <laughs> and yes, and I asked myself, what can I do as a professional? And uh, this was my start of cooperation with the IFRC. So I start to look where I can be uh, most helpful with my skills, with my uh, language profile, with my previous background, with my network in Ukraine. And that's how I start to work with the Federation. As you described it now, you are the right person to provide the support to people like yourself, because you really understand where they're coming from. Um, I agree that I, I am Ukrainian and I feel this double role. But I also want to mention that uh, all the stories, they are different. I heard a lot of stories from different people from Ukraine and each one is unique. The, one, uh, the same event and the same crisis affect us in different way. So I can't say that I know the problem of all Ukrainians. That is why one of my role to go in the field and ask them what is your need and how we can support you in the best way for you. How is your daughter doing now? She is still learning Polish. <laughs> Polish is uh, quite similar to Ukrainian, right? Uh, we have similar words and uh, for sure it's more understandable than other languages uh, from other neighbor countries. Uh, but still it is a challenge, um, especially for me, uh, to try to learn a different pronouncement, you know, the same words we pronounce sometimes in a different way. And also there is some kind of very funny situation that one word uh, in Ukrainian and the same word in Polish, it's even have opposite meaning. Yes, uh, false friends, as we call them, right? Yeah, <laughs> yes. yeah. Yeah, yes. yeah. So I'm Slovenian, so uh, I know exactly what you're talking yeah. about. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Not all Slavic languages yeah. are, are the same, right? There's a lot of false no. friends there. Yeah. <laughs> yes. But it certainly it, it certainly helps. You speak Ukrainian and Russian and uh, uh, your your daughter now you told me the other day was uh, your translator sometimes, right? For Polish. 
<laughs> yes, the, I'm a privilege. I have my own translator at home because the, she practiced a lot at school. She attended the public school and she practiced a lot. And I work more on uh, other language uh, files. So. And she's now um, integrated into the, the uh, life in Warsaw. She has local friends and she's, she's happy. She, she's, uh, you no longer see the markers of distress that you've seen um, two years earlier. Yes, and I'm happy with this. So I did my job as a mother. <laughs> And now I'm fully uh, switched and involved in the project that support uh, the psychosocial support uh, for people uh, that was affected, who was affected. We recorded this interview a couple of weeks ago when we observed World Mental Health Day to remind everyone that mental health is as important as physical health and to break down the stigma surrounding it. What are the roots of this stigma and how is it changing? What have you observed during your work in and around Ukraine? This is a very important question and thank you for the question. Uh, the stigmatization of uh, mental health is a global problem and uh, Ukraine and Ukrainian people uh, are not exception and people who have challenges and face uh, mental health uh, issues they can feel uh, the discrimination it creates the situation when people don't talk about their problems they don't look for help uh, they don't ask for help as a person I was born in USSR <laughs> and there was no even a topic. <laughs> no one know what is mental health meaning. <laughs> so on those times, the only meaning that you put in these two words, mental health, it just understand that the person is very in bad condition and some kind of specialized psychiatric support needed with hospitalization. That was the only understanding of the mental health. Uh, we didn't have even the words in our vocabularies, <laughs> such as well-being, <laughs> emotional support. I learned it <laughs> maybe after 20 or 25. <laughs> so there was no uh, even words that we used in our language. So I would say definitely nowadays it's much, much better. People start to have understanding that there is no health without mental health. People start to say that they feel emotional distress, that they feel that they need support. They start to use words, even words that never was used before in our area. Uh, definitely, we still recognize uh, the high level of stigma. That is why part of activities still uh, we can see that the level of stigma is high among people from Ukraine. And we try 
to increase their awareness campaign and involve more social media to support us in topic that the mental health matter. And let's talk about it. Do you think, you know, for all the harm that COVID-19 caused to people physically and, and mentally, the, this, this pandemic did seem to change the way people think about mental health. You know, with the isolation of lockdowns, everyone around the world understood or began to understand the, the, the stress and, and how that impacted their, their well-being and their lives. Do you agree? Do you think COVID-19 pandemic did actually bring about a change in, in having people speak more openly about mental health? First of all, I think we also have a positive impact of uh, the COVID uh, that people change their life uh, in the way they have this uh, stop in their lives and time to think and reflect about themselves. Usually we are running day on daily basis. We are running on our bus station to go to work. We are running at home. We are running to do something at home or to go to the friends. So all this activity was cut and uh, the reflection uh, helped people to understand that there is also something that they never think about. And uh, during the COVID, we found the time and space uh, to think and to talk about it. This is also important to understand that uh, this isolation helps us to look deeper on ourselves, on our lives and reflect how important it is to be linked with someone, how important to have this emotional support, and how important to care about ourselves and our loved one. You mentioned something earlier when you were torn between being a mother and a professional in this field, um, taking care of your daughter's needs and your own, as well as doing your, your job as a mental health and psych psychosocial support uh, professional. Often, um, professionals in your field, and especially in, people in the humanitarian field, forget about taking care of themselves because there's so many demands placed on them. How do you take care of yourself in all of this? How do you try to help other caregivers to keep themselves healthy. You touched upon this a little bit earlier, but I'm curious, how do you actually do this in practice with your colleagues? Oh, it's very simple things, you know. Sometimes when we are talking about mental health, we think about the very professional level of support. But in practice, uh, on daily life, it's very simple things, like to say hi to your colleague and ask, how are you? And we also have a mothers in our team. So it's simple conversation about the children and just to follow up. Are your child okay? Can I do something for you? Can I give any information maybe you need? And uh, we just have a daily check, check with the colleagues. Oh, hi, let's go for coffee. Let's go and sit outside five minutes because there is a sunshine. And to understand that these simple things have very 
high value uh, to we can have this positive atmosphere and supportive environment that is one of the uh, most important thing uh, that we try to build in our programs for our beneficiaries as well. Those are very, you know, very, like you said, very simple, everyday things, but they mean a lot. They go a long way. Yes, and this is of the part uh, that we are doing when we try to support national society in the capacity building to help them to establish this system of peer-to-peer -peer support for staff and volunteers as well, because we know that uh, the humanitarian workers and the volunteers especially, the group of the people that uh, in a high risk of burnout. So uh, we also think not, not about our programs and our approach, it's not about the service that we deliver to the people, it's also about how uh, we can support each other and what kind of system we need to have on board to be a better professional and stay in a good well-being. We are, we are all people, we are all human. <laughs> all that is going on in the world, the, the sort of the bad news that's coming at us left and right. And right now, you know, as IFRC, we are handling so many crises at the same time around the world. So what inspires you, despite of all that, on a daily basis? What brings you comfort and keeps you going? I feel that my expertise and my skills and my life important because I can help someone. And if it is just the only one person, I can say that my life goes good. <laughs> it's part of my coping strategy. For yourself as well. Yes, yes, to help others. So I can think that I, I can be very helpful and important for someone. And I really have something that I can bring to their life through the program or directly, it's very helpful for me as well. The name of the podcast is People in the Red Vest. What does the red vest mean to you? That's a very good question. <laughs> for me, to wear the red vest, I feel that I'm part of the global community and uh, I feel honored. And I'm proud that I can be a part of this community. In the same time, it is a very, very important question for me uh, because uh, I have this experience to work National Society, ICRC, IFRC, and everywhere I feel that with this red vest, I also very visible for people and they expect something. This is expectation that I can feel from people and in also bring uh, the responsibility. This is what does it mean for me, the responsibility as well. Certainly, there, it's both, right? It's the, the honor, the pride, the, the, and the expectations from the, the people on the ground and then the responsibility to deliver on that. 
and I think most importantly, the feeling like you're part of the global community, right? That that was really uh, a beautiful sentiment. So thank you for that. Yes, this is uh, feelings that you are not alone, that you link with other people globally. And we have a group of also mental health professionals and you know that if you need help, you can ask from your colleague from other parts of the world, hey, <laughs> look, I have a challenge here. <laughs> Let's talk. Do you have a time? And it's really something about the Red Cross movement. Thank you, Natalia, uh, for sharing your story with us, uh, for being with us and for letting us uh, into your world a little bit. Thanks for you, Alexandra, and your team for so nice interview and for the invitation. Thanks for listening to People in the Red Vest, a podcast of inspiring stories as told by people from the IFRC. This podcast was produced by Malcolm Lucard, Damian Naylor, and myself. Promotion and marketing by Maxime Bouchard, Irina Ruano, and Melis Figanmeshe. Graphic design by Valentina Shapiro, and web support from Chris Okwa and Patrick Tai. For more inspiring stories, subscribe to wherever you listen to podcasts.